Welcome again. We are going to be in Hebrews today. We're, we're taking a, uh, a little bit of a shift back into some of the same stuff we talked about earlier in the book. And remember, Hebrews is a book of exhortation. That means warning. And it's also a book of encouragement. And so I, I encourage you, as you go through the book, when you see some sort of warning or exhortation, you just put a, a W next to it. And when you see an encouragement, something that you should do, you put that E. And then when you go back, you can go and you can review and see how these pop out on almost every page. But we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 26 to 31. So let's get there now. And there we go. What happens when the pastor can't find Hebrews? It says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of a living God. Now, I don't recommend if you meet somebody out on the street and they say, well, where can I start in the Bible? I've never read it before. Well, go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Uh, And that'll just probably slay them right down and be like, what is this about? You know, if I go on sinning, I mean, you know, this is what I'm here for. So again, context, 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 which we're going to attempt to bring in the context. And then, of course, what does it mean for us? Now, we've seen this verbiage back in chapter six. Hebrews chapter six, you don't have to go there, but that was our first introduction into the strong warning against falling away. It was about those who fell away after having the knowledge of the truth. But here in verse 1, the writer parallels that sort of falling away with going on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth. And so going on sinning perpetually, knowing what you're doing is wrong, but continuing, continuing, and continuing until eventually it leads to the place of no return. Now this willful sinning is echoing back to what Kevin just read, and that is in Leviticus. Because you know the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, that included covering the people's totality of sins for the year. Okay, not wiping them away, but covering them. But also it covered the unintentional sins as well. Sins that people committed that they may not have even known that they committed. In Leviticus 4, 2, it says, speak Jesus or God says, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, if a person sins unintentionally in any of the things which the Lord has commanded not to be done and commits any of them, 
If the anointed priest sins so as to bring guilt on the people, then let him offer to the Lord a bull without defect as a sin offering for the sin that he has committed. So these are sins that really did, weren't known, but they are also sins, too, that people were hiding, right? And I know we don't have a tendency to hide sins nowadays. We like to get them and expose them and bring them out to the surface. But what, what, what these things, God knew people, okay? So he knew that people needed these coverings. God wasn't just zapping people. It was for those secret sins, but it was also for those sins that were never confessed. Excuse me. So the high priest every year would enter the most holy place and he would make those atoning sacrifices first for himself, his family, and then for the people who, who sinned unknowingly or in innocence. Now, we see an example of this in the book of Acts with Paul. I remember when he was taken uh, uh, or arrested or held by the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Um, he said something and the person he said with one of the leaders of the Jews said, strike him in the face and bang, he got popped in the face and Paul went off. <laughs> he says, God's going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Do you sit and try me according to the law and you are violating the law yourself? And they said, Paul, that's the high priest. He goes, oh, I'm sorry. You should not speak evil against the ruler of your people. And he immediately repented. So you could see there, not necessarily what Paul said was wrong, but it was wrong in the fact that it was to the high priest. He didn't know he was doing it. So that sort of thing happened and covering needed to be for all of those sins. Now, as we saw last week, the Hebrews were forsaking the gathering together in order to do what? Go back to the temple sacrifices. Go back and willingly taking the stuff that God said don't do anymore because of Christ and still repeatedly doing it. They were regarding willingly the blood of the new covenant in Christ as something that was unclean. In reality, they should have seen the temple sacrifices as unclean, which were now an abomination to the Lord, now that Christ's blood was applied. You see, doing any other sacrifice to try to atone for sin is not only meaningless because it's not going to atone, but when you know that what Christ did, that becomes blasphemous. Because it's not needed, it cheapens and it validates the blood of Christ and what he did on the cross. These were those abominable sacrifices that caused desolation. Remember, we heard that in the scripture, the abomination that causes desolation. This is referring to these wicked sacrifices at the temple, which then brought in the destruction of Jerusalem. They could counted Christ's blood unholy and the abominable animal sacrifices as holy. So this going on sinning willfully by making abominable sacrifices after knowing the truth is something called apostasy. Apostasy. The term apostasy comes from the Greek word apostasia, like apostasia, you're gone. When you commit apostasy, you've gone so far that you're not going to come back. It means rebellion, abandonment, defection. 
Apostasy could be seen as the antonym of entering into God's covenant. Because apostasy is going, I've entered into the visible covenant, but now I am stepping out and rejecting the covenant. I am, in fact, walking away and renouncing the new covenant in Christ and his church after knowing the truth. See, apostasy is about knowing the truth and then walking away. So people that are out and they don't know the truth, they don't know, they're unreached, they're not necessarily apostates quite yet. However, if they came and know the truth, they understood it, they were part of the community, and then they went back to their pagan rituals and renounced Christ, that would be called apostasy. And that's what this is regarding. This isn't regarding just any ordinary sin. Listen to Jeremiah, he says in 8.5, he says, Why then has this people, Jerusalem, turned away in continual apostasy? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. So it's a refusal to return on the end of the people. In verse 28 here, we see the sin of apostasy is compared to setting aside Moses' law where the punishment was death for capital offenses. Murder, punishment was death. Adultery, death. Idolatry, death. Blasphemy, death. And those who sinned presumptuously with the high hand, being proud of their sin, they died without mercy, according to God's law. So the judgment language that we're seeing here in the text, as you can see, those caps, all caps, right? When you see that, it's usually referring back to an Old Testament quote. And we see a couple of those here that I want to bring your attention to. The first one is in verse 27. There's a terrifying expectation of judgment for those that fall away. Excuse me. And a fury of fire, which will consume the adversaries. For we know him who said, vengeance is mine. That's verse 30. I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge who? His people. Referring to Israel. The fury of fire is from Isaiah 26, 11. Now Isaiah was a prophet to the northern northern Israel. And he was trying, and southern Israel actually, but he was prophesying about northern Israel, what had happened to northern Israel, warning southern Israel that this is going to happen to you as well. But he was was showing them in many passages that God is going to use their enemies to judge them. So Isaiah 26, 11, O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they do not see it. They see your zeal for the people and they are put to shame. Indeed, let the fire of your adversaries consume them. So this is implying that a fury of fire will consume God's adversaries. Where in this context, it's, it's the non-believing, temple-sacrificing Israel. That's what this is being compared to. So just like in Isaiah, God is going to do the same thing to these people that are turning away after knowing the truth. Again, vengeance is mine, verse 30. And this goes back to, back to Deuteronomy 32, which is much more on the nose about the object of vengeance. It's Israel. But 
Yeshuron, which is Israel, uh, a symbolic name for Israel, describing their ideal character. They grew fat and kicked. You are grown fat, thick, and sleek. Therefore, they forsook God. They scorned the rock of his salvation. They made him jealous with strange, God, with strange gods, with abominations that provoked him to anger. You see, the writer knows what he's doing. He's pulling in these pictures of the Old Testament to try to knock on their door and say, this is where you're heading. And again, it was imminent. This is around AD 66, and Jesus had already said what was going to come. Verse 35, vengeance is mine and retribution in due time their foot will slip. For the day of their calamity is near and the impending things are hastening upon them. Again, he's, he's, drawing back, he's, he's actually referring back to verse 25 when he said the day is drawing near. So he is going back and saying the calamity is drawing near. Just like it was for them, it is for you. It's about to happen. And you don't want to be there when it happens. You want to be in the covenant, not in the old covenant. New covenant, not the old. And again, if Israel was punished this way under the old, how much more willingly sinning against God's new covenant? How much more severer punishment will be those who trample underfoot the Son of God? That's a very uh, unique, interesting phrase in Scripture, trampling underfoot. We see in Matthew 5, it says, You're the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness or tastelessness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You see, salt can't lose its flavor unless it's exposed to long periods of moisture. The sodium chloride disappears, leaves a basic white powder, looks like salt, but has none of its flavor and none of its preserving abilities. So trampling the blood underfoot means you've thrown it out, you've stamped it out, You've treated it with insulting neglect, rudeness, insult, and in turn for you, the blood of Christ loses its potency. It metaphorically becomes useless to you any longer. This is with apostasy. So he's comparing this, the consequences of trampling underfoot the blood of Christ back to these Old Testament warnings of judgment. Well, Pat, you started out today with grace. Uh, can you start talking about grace, please? Right? Mm-mm. Not yet. Seriously, what about God's grace? Well, you see, the very nature of the word grace, listen here, the very nature of the word grace implies no turning back. You're covered. It's the same with apostasy. The very nature of the word means there's no turning back to God from it. So when you're under God's grace, it's irreversible. It can't be taken away because it has nothing to do with you. It has to do everything to do with the love of God bestowed upon you despite your sinfulness, filthiness, rebellion, and all that. When you're covered in God's grace, you will not go apostate. 
But if you're sort of floating around on the fence, there's the problem. You ever sat on the fence before? What happens? Your legs become numb. You start losing feeling. And then eventually you fall off on one side or the other. And it's usually not going to be on the side of grace. If you've been there, the only way you could come over is if God has done it himself. Grace is a work of God. Apostasy is the work of man. Now, I want to make sure you understand apostasy is not falling into a sin. It's not giving into a surprise temptation. Okay, I did this sin and now I'm an apostate. And that's not what it is. Not even battling the sins of the flesh are considered apostasy. Apostasy can begin with those things and often does. But if you're in Christ, if you are his, you will turn to him for grace and forgiveness. When you go in and engage in those sins, you'll come to him with forgive, for forgiveness and grace and you will repent. If you're not his, you will turn further and further and eventually into an apostasy or a state of apostasy where you've went too far. Now, we see examples in the Bible, all over the Bible, and I picked out a couple of them just to show you uh, of these irreversible consequences of apostasy. And, and the, one of the first ones is, is, is shows about death, like what happens when people, and we're talking about in um, Exodus 32, if you remember, Moses went up to get the law, and the people started like giving up on Moses. He's really not our leader. Where is he? Well, I don't know. Aaron says they're getting a little reckless and crazy. Why don't you guys, you know, build a calf and let's worship him, and he'll be our leader. He'll be our God. And what happened as soon as Moses came down near the camp, <clears throat> he saw the golden calf, the dancing, and Moses' anger burned. And he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. A great picture of apostasy breaking the covenant of God because of the people's rebellion. And then he stood in the gate of the camp and he said, whoever's for the Lord, you come to me. And then all the sons of Levi came to him, the priestly tribe. And he said to them, listen, this is what we're going to do. I'm paraphrasing here. I want you to go through the camp, everyone with your sword, and everyone go against his brother, his friend, and his neighbor that has rejected God. Whoever has sinned against me, the Lord said, I will blot him out of my book. The book of life is a covenantal document containing the names and stipulations of those who kept the covenant, but it excludes those who either never came close, <clears throat> but especially those who did and then left when knowing the truth. They had understood, but there was no change affecting their heart. So what causes this? Well, we see another example. What causes this apostasy? I think this, what we're about to see here, is the root cause. And this is when the disciples heard that radical language from Jesus. Remember in John 6, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And everybody's like, okay. And then he says, but you must eat me and drink my blood. Unless if you don't do that, you have no life in you. That was a radical statement. When they heard this, his disciples said, this is a difficult statement. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, conscious that his disciples grumbled, does this cause you to stumble, he said? 
And then he knew that some of them were there that did not believe. Verse 64, for Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And so in verse 66, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. The first major factor in apostasy is unbelief. Unbelief. Unbelief in the words of Jesus. Unbelief in the word of God. They failed to believe Jesus' words. And so those words were a little too difficult for them to, to... He's not the type of guy we are looking for to save us. So what did they do? They were there and they left. And so the seeds of apostasy lie in someone's unbelief in the word of God as truth. What do you think about the word of God? Is it good suggestions? Is it like a, a smorgasbord of, or a, a buffet, I guess you could say, where you just go to the spots you like to eat? Right? You just go over to whatever it is. Maybe you like salads and chicken or you like pasta or pea, whatever. And you just say, well, I don't want any of those vegetables. You know, that's, that's not what I want. Well, God is not, the word of God isn't like that. It's one unit. It's you believe it or you don't, regardless of what you may think. It is absolute or it's not. And so this was the issue with the Hebrew community. They refused to believe it was Christ. Who was the, his word was the very object of the entire temple system in Old Testament. They hung on to the covenant, but the wrong one. Even after Jesus hung on a cross, they decided not to hang with him, but go and hang with the others, the temple sacrificers, and that was an abomination. You see, once the foundation of this simple belief and simple faith is gone, truth will become clouded. You will start to compromise. You will start to twist the Bible to fit whatever it is you want it to say. You will and do this with 100% complete sincerity in the best intentions. But what does the Bible say? When this happens, somebody is on the road to apostasy could be and like the hebrews forsaking the gathering hopping back into the old life the temple system this caused them to stray so far from the truth that it could never be found again and i pray that's none of us here right now unless it is and it's meant that you hear this and immediately now turn and listen to jesus how do we know that it won't be us well notice the opposite response in John 6, from those who stayed with Jesus. So you had a whole group that heard his words and said, I'm out of here. Then you had those disciples that heard his radical, truthful, piercing words and said the following. Because Jesus said in John 60, 660, he says, uh, you don't want to go away also, do you? And then jumping to verse uh, 68, Simon Peter said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. You see, the apostates didn't believe in the word of God. They didn't believe 
that Jesus was the Holy One, the Messiah, the Chosen One, but the ones who stay did. And that's the category you want to believe in, yet you want to be in, believing these things about Christ and who He is. Those who are Christ stay with Christ by the power of the Spirit, and they know He is the only way to the Father, the only way to forgiveness, and the absolute Holy One of God. However, it could be here, you're looking at, well, it seems that Jesus chooses some people and others he doesn't. Well, the key indicator there is not you worrying about the whys, like we were talking about in our prayer meeting today, but look about what the Scriptures say. It's not worrying about what we don't know. It's knowing and and acting on what we do know. And so this key indication, if you do know, will be the condition of your heart as it relates to Christ and belief. Has it been made new, evidenced by faith in Christ? Some that are part of the gathering have hearts far from God. And this is a truth. This is throughout the scriptures. The wheat wheat and the tares are together. The sheep and the goats are together. And even Jesus says, did did I myself not choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. Now he met Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Is there any better example of apostasy in the Bible than the one who was with the Lord, touched, saw, heard, didn't believe, but yet went even further and betrayed? He had his own agenda. Like Lucifer himself, Judas wanted to build his kingdom, not Christ's kingdom. That's another hint of apostasy. Which kingdom are you building? Are you building for your kingdom? Are you building for the way everything at you so you could be on the throne? Or are you constantly building for Christ's kingdom, pushing yourself down and exalting him as Lord and King? How you have fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning. Isaiah 14, 12 to 15. How are you cut down? How art thou cut down to the ground? Got to go with King James with this verse. Which didst weaken the nations. For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north, meaning the strong points. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. And then God says, Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. You see, apostasy is fueled and cultivated by wrong, selfish, sinful, and prideful ambitions to exalt over and to get your plan in action rather than God's. And Judas, he always gets the, you know, he's always beat up upon, rightly so, because we know the whole story and we wish it could have ended different. But trust me, Judas, probably when he first saw Christ, he's not like, oh yeah, I can now, you know, probably get 30 pieces of silver if I hang out with this guy for three years and betray him. 
That's what I'm going to do. That's not what happened. I don't believe. It's not. It's nowhere indicative in Scripture. Actually, just the opposite. In Matthew 26, listen to this, verse 14, it says, One of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Moment. It seemingly happened in a moment. The switch goes off. See, Luke gives even more context to this in chapter 22, verse 3 to 4. And Satan entered into Judas, who belonged to the number of the twelve. And then Judas went to the high priest, the chief priests. You see, this apostasy does more than destroy eternally in the next life. It begins and destroys in this life, where Satan... You don't, he may not come over you and, you know, we all give, we all give our, I think it's very prideful a lot of times that I'm like, yes, Satan is all over me. Satan doesn't care about me or you unless you're going out of your way to do the right thing for Christ. But if you're over here vacillating in, you know, undercover Christianity, he will, he's got you right where he wants you. He's over, you're over there. But no, you see Judas here, he had the seeds already. We know that. He was a thief. He used to pilfer what was put into the money box and then say, why, why isn't this money used for the poor? Because he knew that the more money given to the poor, the less money in his pocket. So the indwelling greed and thievery that he had, his mind gradually became twisted enough for Satan to have that moment to enter in and cause him to betray Jesus. So apostasy starts from the scriptures here, various tiny little willful sins that grow and selfishness that grows and ultimately complete hearty rebellion equaling total unbelief. So what does this mean? So we must take the warning of the Hebrews Beyond just saying, oh yeah, that was because they were apostate, and that was because that's not believers, that's not me, and that's the impulse, because we are scared by these passages. We, pat, we look at them and we're like, okay, but now you know that the context is there, but that doesn't negate the severity of the warning that the Holy Spirit gave to us and, and wants us to know. We have to take this warning seriously because it is deceptive. Okay, that's de deception by nature is deceptive. You don't know you're being deceived. So look at your actions and your heart. Remember where it starts, that unbelieving heart. Let's go in. The Hebrews, again, we look at Hebrews and we, we're at like, what, week 28 in this book. But it didn't take the writer 28 weeks to write this. He sat down probably after praying and thinking about it. The Holy Spirit moved him, and he wrote the letter. I don't know, it could have taken him a couple of weeks to perfect it and then get it sent out and pray over it. I don't know. But he wrote it all as one letter, not 28 different sermons. So we have to read it that way. So when we see him talking about this stuff back in chapter 3, like where he says here, Take care, brethren, that not one be, or that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. And again, listen, but encourage one another. 
Again, see the parallels to the, what we've been recently talking about. Day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if, conditional statement, we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm to the end. And that's why it said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Meaning don't ignore what you're hearing. If it's starting to ring a bell, don't do it like that's what provoked God when they were in the wilderness. Another warning from the chapter before that's very helpful. Chapter uh, two, verses one in Hebrews, it says, for this reason, we must pay close attention to what we've heard. Jesus in the word so that we do not drift away. If we neglect so great a salvation, how will we escape such a just penalty? See, apostasy begins with that drifting away from the truth of God's word, neglecting the salvation. And we need to heed these warnings. And now we have this one verse that I was hoping we could just leave. (laughs) It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands (laughs) of a living God. Terrifying. And severe are mentioned in these tiny little, this little tiny passage three times, terrifying twice. And it's pertaining to God and his justice against apostasy. You see, you have to understand, people, the character of God as it relates to apostasy. God is the supreme judge of all the earth. Out of his character flow the rules of engagement of justice. Out of his character flows righteousness. Being rightness is out of his character. It's impossible for God to do anything unrighteous. It's impossible for God to do anything selfish. It's impossible for God to do anything cruel. So put that into context here. If he were ever to be unjust, there would be no hope that justice could ever prevail. Now, when we talk about this justice... We're, we're, we're talking about eternal justice, eternal death as the punishment for sin for those who reject the gospel of Jesus Christ. <clears throat> rejecting what Jesus did, rejecting his blood. And again, this terrifying aspect in historical context we've already referred to, it's those Jews who rejected Jesus who would receive God's punishment at his coming on Jerusalem in judgment in A.D. 70, but most importantly, decimating the temple where not one stone would be left upon another. But this also has terrifying application to the final judgment of all mankind. That's me and you. Isaiah 33, 14, who among us can live with consuming fire? Who among us can live with continual burning Sounds so fundamental, doesn't it? Sounds so Bible-thumping, right? You know, you're going to burn in hell. Listen, this is what the Bible says. This isn't not, you know, there's, there's so much room here for you to turn. There's so much room here because of God's grace. But yet when we, want, when we look at God, we want him to be right and just. But when it comes to dealing with our sin, no, I want you to be the wink at the sin type of God. And that would make him a bad judge. 
and it would make him, he would be completely fired from that position if that were even possible. Nobody understands the power of his anger and his fury, says Psalm 90.11. Jesus says, don't fear those who kill the body but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And so in many ways, it's an amazing thing to fall into the hands of the living God. However, in terms of apostasy, you don't want to do that. If you're drifting into this area, into this unbelief, considering outright rejection of the Son of God and His blood, there will be no other option than the consuming fire and wrath that is reserved for God's adversaries in the day of judgment. So what do you do if you are like, okay, Pat, you got my attention. What do I do? Maybe I am drifting. Maybe I don't believe. Maybe I'm a little mad. Maybe I am thinking of going back. And that includes if you leave this church. No, I'm just kidding. Some people will make some churches say that. You got to be in this church, this denomination, or if not, you're rejecting God. That's not what I'm saying. You need to be in a local church. It doesn't have to be here. But it's more, it's more about that. It's about your heart. What do you do if you know this drifting is happening? Well, again, let's go to Peter. Peter in Matthew 14, <clears throat> when, Jesus was, uh, when Jesus was walking on water, remember, Peter says, who is it? And he goes, it's me. He says, can I come out to you? And Peter, we know the story. He starts to walk and then he starts, he, he sees the wind and he becomes frightened and he begins to sink. And he cries out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus stretched out his hand, took hold of him and said, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And they got into the boat. The wind stopped. And those who were in the boat worshipped. So it's easy. You can go from this lack of faith to worship very quickly. Saying you certainly are the son of God. So if you're beginning to sink, the only thing you can do, you can't do anything else. And that's cry out to Christ. Trying to swim or tread water will only tire you out and bring you more certainly to your demise. Cry out to Jesus. No one else. You don't have to cry out to Jesus through me, through anyone here, through any other type of leader in a church. You can cry out to him directly and he will hear and he will give you grace upon grace in a time of need. And then you'll feel that loving hand pull you up. Reach down into those depths pull you up and prevent you from drowning into that place of no return. Jesus isn't looking for perfection. He's looking for direction. Are you going in the right direction? Sinking in unbelief or crying out to Jesus for his hand? And then, of course, Peter makes the striking confession. And again, this is back to what he said. When Jesus said to him, Lord, when he said, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That was right after that experience. And so if you are sinking, you could cry out and God will change your heart, change your mind and make you worship him and make you acknowledge him as son of God. That's the grace of God that you cannot conjure up on your own. So may we be able to say that. And hopefully we can believe, truly believe the same. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your 
love for us so much that you give us such a plain warning in Scripture. But Lord, you know who, what we are, you know what we're made of, and you know that we have no hope other than your grace. Lord, I pray if there is anyone here going in that direction that your words would have, would have woken them up today so that they will cry out to you. And I want to encourage you to do that if you're here. Just cry out to the Lord from your heart and turn away from that ultimate devastating destination. In Jesus', in Jesus name we pray this, Lord. Amen. Amen.